Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in our hands and make our way to the very last chapter of Luke's Gospel. We've been studying verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke for over a year now. We are presently in chapter 8 in our verse by verse study, but we're going to skip ahead today to the very last chapter of Luke, Luke chapter 24. And if it's been a while since you read the Gospel of Luke, there's a spoiler alert. Jesus doesn't stay dead. In fact, that's what we've come to celebrate here today. Here in chapter 24, Jesus has already risen from the dead. The women have found the tomb empty. Jesus uh, finds two of his disciples walking along the seven-mile road from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus. And we pick up the action in verse 13, Luke 24, 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. And they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it's getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? while he was explaining the scriptures to us. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of this, his holy word. The question they asked one another is, did our hearts not burn within us? I want to address you this morning on the subject of inflammation of the heart. Our pastors and deacons have spent what seems to me an inordinate amount of time in recent weeks visiting our members in the hospital. I know of at least three men in our church who are recovering from open heart surgery in their homes this very morning. But these two disciples, with the burning in their hearts, were not having a medical emergency. Rather, they were experiencing a divine mercy. 
This was the Holy Spirit, I take it, stirring their hearts to faith as he confirmed within them the message that Jesus was teaching from the Old Testament Scripture. He was confirming that what they were hearing was truth. And I pray that the Lord would do the same work in every heart here today. So let's look at this condition of an inflamed heart from four perspectives. First of all, it's cause. Secondly, it's symptoms. Thirdly, it's transmission. And finally, it's cure. What is the cause of this burning or inflamed heart within these disciples of Christ? Look at verse 32. They said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scripture? The simple diagnosis, the simple cause of the inflamed heart was that these men were walking close to Jesus as the word of God was being rightly taught. All of the Bible is about Jesus Christ. I could have opened the Bible to any passage, Old or New Testament today, and it would talk about Jesus. All of the Bible is a revelation of God's eternal redemptive plan in which Jesus Christ is the hero. You see, the Bible is not a self-help book sent to assist us in getting the most out of this life. The Bible is not the key that unlocks the mystery of making more money and influencing people. The Bible is the revelation of God's eternal plan of redemption. That plan, before any of us ever drew a breath in the secret counsels of the Most High, is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit agreed to redeem and save a people unto themselves. So the Scripture says, as Jesus explained that eternal plan to them, He began in the Scriptures, specifically with Moses. Now you might know that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. We know those collectively as the Pentateuch. And it's right away in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, that we're introduced to the first prophecy about the Messiah. Genesis chapter 3, you know that Adam and Eve were prohibited from taking of this one particular tree in the garden upon penalty of death. And of course they were tempted by Satan in the form of a servant. Eve took first and then gave to her husband and both of them sinned before the Lord. And so God the Father came as He did in the cool of the morning and found them hiding in fear of Him because they knew they were guilty. And He pronounced a curse not only on Adam and Eve, cast them out of the garden, He pronounced a curse on their progeny. That's all of us. And on the earth itself and on Satan, the serpent. And He said in Genesis chapter 3 that there's coming one of the seed of woman. One day the serpent would crush Excuse me, the serpent would strike him on the heel, but he would crush the serpent's head. That is unmistakably what Jesus did. At the cross, the serpent, Satan, struck him on the heel, but it was not ultimately a final mortal blow because Jesus rose victorious. But Satan is crushed. Now you say he's still in the world. He is, but his fate has already been established. Book of Revelation says that one day ultimately he's going to be cast in the pit that was prepared for he and the demons. And I suspect Jesus went to Genesis chapter 3 and perhaps from there he went to Genesis chapter 22, the story of Abraham when God instructed him to sacrifice his son Isaac upon the altar. And he was willing to do that. And he tied up his son and laid him on the altar, but of course that was not God's will. And then Isaac, though he laid down, he rose back up again, didn't he? Because God had provided the ram caught in the thicket. This is a picture and a typical prophecy of Jesus. 
And perhaps he went to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, which describes the Messiah, the suffering servant. Though Isaiah was written 800 years before the birth of Christ, amazingly, great detail about what the Messiah would be like. How he would be despised and rejected and crushed by God and how men would hide their faces from him and by his stripes that we would be healed. Perhaps he went to the Psalms and in Psalm 22 he found the passage that Jesus quoted on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we don't know how long this conversation lasted, but it went on for several miles until they arrived at their destination. And Jesus taught them from the Old Testament Scriptures all the things about Himself. And so if you want to know the cause or how to have a heart on fire for God, it's through having a right understanding of God's Word. And there's no better teacher than the Lord Himself. So that's the cause. Secondly, what are the symptoms? You've been diagnosed with an inflamed heart. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means you will become warm towards the things of God. You'll have an attraction to the Word of God and to the people of God. We call that having a hunger for righteousness. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. David in the Old Testament wrote these words, As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after you. These men were the same. After hearing Jesus teach, they didn't say, well, it's time to go. They didn't yawn and stretch and say, it's about time to be heading down the street. They wanted to hear more. Look at verse 28. It says, And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us. They wanted to hear more of what he had to say. And if you're walking close to Jesus, walking where he walks, being fed upon the Word of God, you know that it's the bread that satisfied and you'll want more of it. Not only will you want more of God's Word, you'll want to be around God's people. We call that Christian fellowship. It's the desire to be around people who know the same Lord you know and believe the same truth that you believe. Now you'll notice they were not looking for fellowship. Jesus walks up near them and joins themselves to the party. In fact, these men are described as disciples of Jesus, and yet they're going away from where we know the other disciples were, the city of Jerusalem. They're not seeking fellowship because they're disillusioned and disappointment. Their eyes are blinded from the truth. But as they walk with Jesus, then they have this desire to, to turn around and, and go back. And, and that's something else you'll see as you're walking close to the Lord, as your heart is on fire for Him, you will often recollect God's previous work in your life. Look at verse 21. As they're talking to Jesus about what has happened in Jerusalem, they said, what we were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. In fact, some of the translations say, we believed that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. There was a time where they were true disciples. They had great faith, but because of circumstances of life, they had found their faith had grown cold and, and, and dull. And Jesus is now rekindling that faith and that fire that is within them. And one of the signs that that's happening is they now want to be with God's people. They turn around and they go back to Jerusalem to be with the disciples. And that's the, the third thing, the third symptom of having a, an inflamed heart for the things of God is there's an urgency to tell others what you have learned. You remember when you first came to know the Lord? You first started studying the Bible? These things that 
you'd, you'd probably read all of your life or heard about all your life, suddenly they begin to make sense. And suddenly you begin to, to see your, your spiritual eyes are opening and you can't keep it to yourself. You have to tell other people. There's an urgency to the message. And that's our third point. Not only is the cause of an inflamed heart walking closely with Jesus and being taught rightly the Word of God, and not only are the symptoms an attraction to the people of God and the Word of God and an urgency to tell others what you've learned, we, we see thirdly how this inflamed heart is transmitted. One of the things that uh, doctors are, are keen to understand is how diseases are, are transmitted from one person to the next. Well, an inflamed heart is not a disease. It is the condition of the Holy Spirit working within us and it is ultimately, obviously, His work. We've had several hundred people in the last few months trained in personal evangelism. And what I've appreciated most about this curriculum is that the author of it time and time again reiterates that no matter how many people you share the gospel with, you are not capable of saving anyone. Salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a gift of God. However, the means that God has chosen in His sovereignty to share this good news message is His people telling other people. Scripture says that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. God chose that the simple gospel proclaimed clearly to be the means by which the Holy Spirit brings people to saving faith. And so Paul asked the rhetorical question, how will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear unless someone proclaims the truth to them? Well, the implied answer is they won't. And so that's the Lord's sovereignty at work. That's how this fire on, on uh, this heart on fire for God is transmitted from person to person. Look at verse 33. After Jesus had opened their eyes, after their hearts had started to burn within them through this message they've heard, Scripture says they got up that very hour. Do you notice they didn't wait till the next day? How many times has God put something on your heart to do and you'll say it'll wait till the morning? And then the morning comes and it's all been forgotten. They didn't wait. They got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them saying, The Lord has really risen. <laughs> That's an interesting word there because they had already confessed that they had heard witnesses say that He was risen. The women went to the tomb and they didn't believe the women. Peter and John went to check out the women's story and it panned out, but they didn't believe Peter and John. It was not until they saw Jesus with their own eyes that they come back and they say, it's true. He is really risen and has appeared to Simon. And then verse 35 says, they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. They could not wait to tell other people. Well, that's how the good news is, is transmitted. That's how one person who's on fire for the things of God uh, tells another person and the Holy Spirit takes that message and sets their heart aflame as well. And think about it. That's been going on for 2,000 years, right? That little band of ragtag disciples who abandoned Jesus in His hour of need that the world looked down upon as uneducated and, and unfit. That was the means through which billions of people today are celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the point I really want to stress to you about the condition of an inflamed heart is its cure. And I'm so grateful for medical science, surgeons that can uh, 
cure blocked arteries and even do amazing cancers on the most delicate parts of the body. So if you want to know how to have a cure for this heart on fire for God, I'm about to tell you. Because I suspect there are some of you here this morning that remember a time in the past that you did have an inflamed heart for the things of God. But maybe that's a distant memory. Maybe that was a long time ago. And the question is, what happened? Well, we know one thing. If you had a heart on fire for God and it's no longer on fire for God, God and His Word have not changed. The Bible says that He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Scripture says the, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God endures forever. So it's not that God has moved. And so that leaves us with another possibility. Maybe you have changed. I think there's about four ways in which we can quench a heart on fire for God. Number one, and the most obvious, is unconfessed sin. That is, something or someone has taken first place in your life over Christ. Maybe there's a time in your life when Christ was first and foremost, but something or someone has replaced Him. The Bible calls that idolatry. Maybe it's materialism. I think that's a particularly great temptation where we live. Jesus says you can't serve God in money. It's an impossibility. You'll either love the one or hate the other. Maybe it's pleasure for some of you. Maybe it's sex in some deviant form, whether in an illicit relationship or pornography or some other way that your mind has been filled with uh, things that aren't pleasing to God. Maybe it's some other sin. I don't know your heart. I do know Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus says, because wickedness abounds, the love of most will grow cold. So the quickest way to quench a heart on fire for God is to live in sin and not confess it daily. Another form of sin, though, is not just those overt sins I've mentioned. It's simply neglecting the things we know to do that are right. We call those sins of omission. The Bible says if we know to do right and don't do it to God, it is sin. To us it is sin. Neglect of the spiritual disciplines like prayer. Prayerlessness will make your heart grow cold very quickly. Leaving your, your Bible on the shelf, letting it attract dust instead of studying it daily. Here's one. Forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. The Bible says to not do that. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. We need one another, the Bible says, to spur one another on to good works, to help bear one another's burdens. But if you withdraw from your church family and through corporate worship and fellowship, don't be surprised if very quickly your heart grows cold. But this seems not to be the case with these men. These are men that had been the very presence of Christ in Jerusalem. They had been around other believers. They apparently had been praying and seeking to understand the Scriptures. As far as we know, they weren't involved in overt sins or either sins of neglect. And yet their hearts had grown cold and their eyes had grown dim to the things of God through fear and disillusionment. That is, things did not turn out the way they expected these disciples, like the rest of Jesus' disciples, had expected Jesus to be a conquering king, to overthrow the Romans and rule with an iron scepter from his throne in Jerusalem. And instead, he turned out to be a humble 
meek and mild suffering servant. As they were trying Jesus in those sham trials and as they were beating him and as they were nailing his hands and feet to the cross, they were suspecting and expecting at any moment Jesus was going to call fire down from heaven. And he didn't do that. And he literally died. And he was placed in a tomb like everyone else. And they thought it was over. And they were disillusioned and disappointed with God. In fact, they were fearful. They had gone into hiding, probably like the other disciples. In fact, they were leaving town, heading to Emmaus. Maybe there are some people in this room today whose life did not turn out like you expected. Maybe your marriage that you thought was going to be idyllic was not. Maybe the career path you started on didn't end where you thought it should or would. Maybe your very physical health has not been what you dreamed it might be. You, like these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, are disillusioned, maybe disappointed with deity. And maybe you're fearful about the future, and that fear and anxiety has caused your zeal for the things of God to grow dim and to grow cold. Look at verse 21 again. We were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. The problem with them is they had a too low a view of Jesus. See, they thought Jesus was just going to have an earthly kingdom. What they did know is that Jesus came to rule and reign all the universe. That one day, not only this little ragtag bound of disciples in the Middle East, but every knee would bow and every tongue would confess of things in heaven on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And the Bible says that all who put their trust in Him will not be disappointed ultimately. But then I think there's one more way in which our hearts can grow cold to the things of God and, and that is through inoculation. I'm not going to get into the debate on whether we should vaccinate our children or not. But you know that inoculation is when you introduce a dead form of the real thing into a body. And I fear, as I observe the landscape of the evangelical church writ large around the world and specifically in the Western world, I fear what is passing as the true gospel is really a dead form of the real thing. But so many people are attracted to the gospel of self-help. That God wants me to have my best life in the here and now. The gospel of prosperity, that God wants you to live like a king here on earth and drive the best cars and live in the largest homes and never have any health problems. Or the gospel of personal achievement, that the Bible is here to help you become self-actualized and make it far in your career. Dear friends, that's a lie from hell. That is not the true gospel. The true gospel begins with bad news. The bad news is that our first parents, Adams and Eve, sinned, and that sin's guilt was transferred to every one of us through our ancestors. And not only are we guilty through Adam, we are guilty individually through choice. Romans 3.23 says that uh, all of us are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. The reason that's bad news is, is that God is holy and God is just. When I say that God is just, I mean He's perfectly just, is that He always hates and punishes sin. And He has promised one day to pour His wrath out on sin. And all of us stand guilty before Him. But the gospel, 
The good news is that God has made a way that we can avoid His wrath. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish ultimately, but have everlasting life. And so He did what He had planned to do before the beginning of time. He sent His Son into the world at just the right moment in history to take on the form of a man not born into regal robes and mansions, but a very simple home where he lived a perfect life, where he completed all righteousness and he went to the cross without sin to die in our place. We call that substitutionary atonement. He covered our sin through his blood and he was buried as the Old Testament predicted he would be. And... He's alive today. On the third day, He came forth from the grave, showing forth that God the Father was satisfied with the sacrifice of the Son. But not only that, for all of us who put our faith and trust in Him, we no longer have to fear death and dying. Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now I suspect some of you in this room today, your heart is burning within you. Because the Holy Spirit is confirming in your spirit right now that what you're hearing is the truth about Jesus. I can tell you how to cure that. I can tell you how to put out that fire. Leave here today and go home and fill your life with entertainment and work and busyness. And you'll soon find that fire will go out. Go home and distance yourself from other believers. Not study your Bible. Leave it on the shelf. Wait until next Easter to come back to church. You'll find your heart is cold once again. But maybe there's some in this room who don't want the fire to go out. In fact, you want to fan it into a flame. How can you do that? Well, it starts with confession of sin. The Bible says if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you're here today and you've never confessed your sin, you've never repented and turned to faith in, in Jesus, today is the day of salvation. With confession comes repentance. It's not just, I did it, but I'm planning to do it in a, again in the future. It's I did it and I don't want to do it anymore. I turn and I walk away from my sin and, and towards Christ. That's what repentance is. And, and, and the other side of repentance is belief. It's faith. See, Paul told us through his letter to the Ephesian church that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. It is the gift of God. No, no one can boast about having salvation because you didn't do anything to earn it. You can't do anything to earn it. It's what Christ has done in our place. You must receive it. As you received a gift. And if you're here today and you've never received that gift, I urge you. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And then he says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, then there's another group of people here today. Perhaps there was a time when you were walking close to the Lord. You genuinely believed. You were born again. But the cares of the world and busyness and career and family and maybe even sin began to 
choke out that zeal and to put out the flame and you found yourself where you never thought you'd be with a cold heart. The Holy Spirit is stirring you today. And I call you to recommit your life to Christ. First of all, recommit to being around other Christians, not just once or twice a year, but regularly. To studying your Bible, not only at church, but throughout the week. And commit to, to praying to the Lord. Every day, confessing your sins before Him and staying in right relationship to Him. And if you'll do that, what you'll find is that that warm stirring in your heart can be flamed, fanned into a flame. And it's my prayer, my hope, and my belief for every one of you that if you'll do that, that we can stay on fire as individuals and as a church until Christ returns or the Lord calls us home to glory. Amen? Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the Word of God. These two men who walked closely with Jesus, who in their hearing had the Word of God rightly taught, found their hearts burning within them. And Father, we've all who know the Lord have experienced the Holy Spirit's conviction. And Lord, I pray He would do His work now of convicting sinners of sin and judgment and righteousness, confirming in the heart of believers their faith in Christ is well-founded. I pray for some here who've never called upon the name of the Lord that today would be the day that they would. And then I pray for some who are genuinely saved but have wandered far from you. Would you draw them home here today? We recommit our lives today to walking with Jesus and we pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.